it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The rumors circulating through the village were so dark, so awful, that few paid them much mind. It just didn't make any sense. If what was being said was actually true, it would make one of the highest profile, wealthiest, most powerful women in the entire country a psychopathic killer. How could that even be possible? But then the talk around town shifted in a crucial way. Instead of the rumored victims being merely poor peasant girls, some now were reportedly members of a quote-unquote higher societal class the prepubescent daughters of noblemen and women whose complaints garnered a lot more attention than did the complaints of poor parents. Finally, after years of speculation, the highest-ranking politician in the Kingdom of Hungary launched an investigation. Giorgio Thurzo knew the accused woman well. He had long been a family confidant and had known the woman's husband, a celebrated war hero who had died a few years earlier. Thurzo was sure he could quickly put the rumors to bed. But that's not what happened. After listening to the woman convincingly explain away dozens of missing girls as having died of unfortunate cholera infections, Thurzo left, only to return soon after when villagers reported four girls' bodies had been tossed over the fortified walls of the castle Cheshti. That's when it finally came to light that Elizabeth Bathory, the countess who had lived in the castle, had been systematically beating, torturing, and murdering young girls in one of the first documented cases of serial killings in the world. While the story around her has morphed in the centuries since, often to the point of ridiculousness, the truth as presented in early 17th century trial testimony still makes her one of the most ruthless, cruel, and prolific killers in history. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. 
Before I begin this episode, a quick note. As you probably caught in the intro, this one's not just foreign, but old, like super old. 16th, 17th century old. Lots of people were straight up illiterate when records were kept back then, in messy handwriting, I should add. So there are multiple spellings of these foreign names. Long story short, I usually promise one mispronunciation per episode. I guarantee more than that this time around, despite my best efforts. Apologies to my Hungarian listeners. That out of the way, this case has been on my to-do spreadsheet since early on in season one, but I kept punting. Under the heading case description, I had written, quote, she was a Hungarian princess accused of some 650 murders, end quote. I also noted that she was accused of bathing in her victim's blood and the disturbing belief that it would preserve her youth. Spoiler alert, that wouldn't have worked anyway and that she supposedly cut her lover's hearts out and kept them in boxes in her bedroom. Having done my research now, I can say as confidently as possible with a 400-year-old case that not one of those rumors seems likely to be true. But man, what this woman was likely guilty of is already the stuff of nightmares. So let's begin. She is one of the earliest serial killers in recorded history, the original sadomasochistic femme fatale, this is Simon Whistler in a biographics documentary. She stands out as a shocking lesson in just how dangerous a sadistic, demented, powerful woman can be. Her name wasn't really Elizabeth, it was Erzabet, though we'll use the generally accepted modern-day English equivalent because it's under that name that you find the most documentaries and such. She was born August 7th, 1560 into the Bathory family, which had risen in prominence during the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This clan was not viewed as a family of slouches. Over the years, it boasted a few princes, a cardinal, and even a king of Poland. Plus, some of its members held authority positions in the Kingdom of Hungary. This was a storied family, to say the least. There's documentation from the 1200s about its origins. They weren't always called the Bathories, of course. That came about in the early 1300s after one ancestor took possession of a place called Bator, after which family members referred to themselves as being Bator or Bathory. They became an incredibly powerful and wealthy family by the time Elizabeth was born and grew into adulthood. From an absolute crime documentary. From the history books, we know that during this time, the country was involved in a brutal and long-running war with the Turks. Her personal letters revealed Bathory was a loving wife and mother to several children. We also know she ran her family's vast estates when her husband was away at battle. It was, of course, a brutal time to be alive. Life expectancy was in the 50s. Infant mortality was insane. Dysentery was common. I found a University of Michigan rundown of documented illnesses in the latter half of the 1500s in Hungary, and things were wild. Epidemic quinzies, or throat infections, malignant smallpox, the plague. There was also the Hungarian fever, which sounds utterly horrifying. It would start with some cold and shivering, then switch from that to intense heat and pain so intolerable in the sick person's head, mouth, and stomach that they would shriek in agony at the slightest touch, like even bed sheets touching them would be torturous. Here's a quote from the OM document titled Historical View of the Pestilential Epidemics from the Year 1500 to the Year 1600. Quote, The thirst was unquenchable, and a longing for wine, which was fatal if taken, 
The tongue was dry and lips chopped. Delirium came on the third day. A critical looseness and deafness were favorable. Swellings behind the ears were frequent. The most miserable crisis was tubercles on the tops of the foot, which, if neglected, ended in mortification. Many suffered amputation. Spots like flea bites appeared on the body, and if livid or black, they were fatal symptoms. Copious bleeding on the first seizure was, of all remedies, the most successful, end quote. Which reminds us that even the medical treatments of this era were bonkers by today's standards. Sometimes I wonder how the hell we humans managed to survive so long that we're literally endangering the planet. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, especially when you remember just how much inbreeding there was back in the day, too. She would be the product of inbreeding between Baron George Bathory and Baroness Anna Bathory. This is from Simple History. Elizabeth had three siblings, one brother and two sisters. Her family was one of the wealthiest and influential in the kingdom, ruling Transylvania as a virtually independent principality. Transylvania was an on-again, off-again part of Hungary in the 11th to 16th centuries, then an autonomous principality within the Ottoman Empire, before again becoming part of Hungary at the end of the 17th century. and the first half of the 20th century, it was incorporated into Romania. The Countess grew up to be well-educated with a good understanding of mathematics, as well as learning to speak fluently in four languages, her native Hungarian, as well as Latin, Greek, and German. Despite life having to have seemed fairly disposable during these days, Elizabeth's parents were determined to give her all the advantages they could. At the time, a lot of parents, even ones in the nobility, weren't keen on spending much money or effort on the development of their female children beyond ensuring they married well and made enough babies that one might survive to carry on the family name. But Elizabeth was treated nearly on par with her brother. She was said to have, quote-unquote, masculine interests. Author Kimberly L. Kraft wrote in her biography of Bathory called Infamous Lady, quote, Young Erzabet is what we would today call a tomboy. She demanded to be treated as well as her male relatives and staff. She enjoyed dressing up like a boy, studying like a boy, and playing boys' games, including fencing and horsemanship. She would also throw hysterical fits when she would not get her way. She was extremely studious and mature, however, and there was no question she was brilliant, end quote. She was engaged at a very early age to the son of an influential baron, who she then later married at the age of 15. It is said around 4,500 people attended the wedding. Elizabeth received Kachicha Castle, a 13th century fortification situated in what is now modern-day Slovakia, as a wedding gift from her husband. Side note, there are a few pronunciations on that castle. I'm going with Chesti because it's supposedly closest to the original Hungarian pronunciation, but it depends if you're going with the Slovakian spelling slash pronunciation or the Hungarian. Long story short, I'm following the C-S-E-J-T-H-E version craft sites in a book. And the reason I'm dwelling on this a moment is because the castle becomes a full-fledged character in this tale thanks to its role as a grisly, infamous crime scene. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Castle Chesty isn't the only castle Elizabeth Bathory ran with her husband. Frank Nedesty, who was alternately called a baron or a count, making Elizabeth the baroness or a countess. The couple had multiple palaces, the centerpieces of which were castles Server and Keritzer. Gender norms being what they were back then, Frank would have been the main go-to in running these palaces normally, but because of ongoing war in the region, he was away a lot during the first decade of their marriage. As such, Elizabeth stepped up, sending letters instructing staffers how to run things, what to pay in taxes, what to stock in each pantry, and so forth. Now, there aren't a lot of revealing documents that exist still to shed light on what Elizabeth and Frank's marriage was like, especially during the early years. There was a rumor at the time, though, that before the marriage, when Elizabeth was 13 and living with her betrothed, because that's what people did back then as a way to sort of train the woman for wifedom, Ferenc had left for battle, during which time Elizabeth had taken on a lover. According to a later book written about the affair, the lover's name was Laszlo Bendy. According to Kraft, quote, He supposedly had a magnetic personality and heroic manner. Some commentators state that he was a servant and table waiter. Others claim that he was a young nobleman, end quote. Either way, Laszlo supposedly got Elizabeth pregnant, which was a pretty big no-no. But because Ferenc and Elizabeth were both from such high-standing families, they opted to cover up the scandal and move forward with the wedding in 1575, when Elizabeth was 15. As Kraft wrote, quote, Legend also has it that the furious bridegroom had Laszlo Bendy castrated, throwing his severed private parts to the dogs, end quote. Now, there's a weird postscript to this legend. There is some contemporary documentation suggesting that Elizabeth did have relations pre-marriage and that a baby resulted from those relations, but that documentation strangely is dated in 1609, which is way after the 1573 conception date. Like, Elizabeth would have been 49 years old when this document was prepared by church authorities. And by the way, in the document, Elizabeth reports that she was raped way back when. I can't know what's true here, but I find it all fascinating, and it could be relevant in terms of playing a role in her behavior later in life. Writer Karen Krasanovich. The way Elizabeth Bathory ran around town when she was younger, she was almost like Paris Hilton. She can get away with whatever she wanted to do. She can wear whatever she wants. She can just, you know, sex with anybody that she likes. Nobody stops her. So that's one part of her early development. 
Another is that she likely was exposed to barbaric treatment of servants and such when she was young. It was pretty common for supposedly misbehaving commoners to get hanged in public or have fingers or hands chopped off. And then you have the aforementioned dysentery and Hungarian fever and plague pandemics causing people to drop dead in the middle of the streets. And you know, it seems fair to think that all of this might have converged and caused a few issues. Forensic profiler David Holmes in a real crime documentary. I think it's possibly within the family and within the kind of culture to, to have sexual experiences a lot earlier. In her case, it clearly was very early. And she will have had, in combination with these sadistic experiences, sexual experiences which perhaps reflected this. No children came from the Bathory and Adisti union that first decade of marriage. The firstborn to them was daughter Anna, who came around 1585. Historians posit that the delay might have been because of Ferenc's time on the battlefield, or maybe because he was mad that she'd been pregnant before they got married. Or maybe she had fertility problems, which wasn't uncommon among Hungarian nobility at the time. The latter theory is supported by Elizabeth's relationship with Countess Eva Popolopkovitz, who supposedly was a respected herbalist and folk medicine practitioner. But there's no question that Ferenc was away at battle an awful lot, a fact that earned him quite a reputation. Her husband was off fighting against the Ottomans. He proved to be a great warrior, earning himself the nickname of the Black Knight of Hungary. Biographics again. His absolute brutality in the face of the enemy terrified his enemies and shocked his allies. The Turks invaded Hungary in 1591, precipitating what had become known as the Long War, which lasted from 1593 to 1606. The war was to drag on, severely depleting the Hungarian economy. It did not deplete Ferenc and Elizabeth's economy, though, in part because Ferenc had a habit of stealing Turkish treasures when he was out battling. In fact, the couple grew so wealthy that during this time they actually lent money to the Hungarian Habsburg Empire to keep the country afloat. If you can just imagine that for a second, I guess this would be on par with, like, the Kennedys loaning the U.S. government money during a war. It's hard to wrap my head around. Anyway, while all this was going on, the couple did manage to sire several children. By 1600, they had five daughters Anna, Orsolia, and Catalin, and sons Andres and Pale. Andres only lived to age seven, dying around 1603. Two of the daughters survived into adulthood, though it seems Orsolia died in her teen years. By all contemporary accounts, Elizabeth was a devoted mom. This is the late Poland-born actress Ingrid Pitt, who played a character based on Elizabeth in the 1971 cult classic movie Countess Dracula. She loved her children. She was a wonderful mother. She had a reputation of helping the neediest in her villages, too. She also gave refuge to desperate peasants feeding and housing them. But it seems more was going on behind the scenes than people realized. Ferenc was reportedly quite the fan of torturing his enemies on the battlefield, and he apparently brought home some of his favorite techniques and shared them with his wife. It's said they bonded over their love of violence, torturing young servant girls who were 
under their charge. Ferenc taught his teenage wife innovative methods of torture, such as rolling up pieces of oiled paper, placing it in between the toes of a servant girl, and then setting it on fire. It is also claimed that he gave Elizabeth a clawed glove for her to scratch up the faces of disobedient girls. There is no doubt that her husband introduced Elizabeth to all manner of atrocity. By the way, Kraft wrote about this glove in her book, too. It sounds like a straight-up Freddy Krueger glove. Kraft described it as a, quote, device that resembled a hand of sharp claws that could be fitted over the fingers to cut, slash, and stab a victim, end quote. While it wasn't common knowledge at the time, later testimony suggested that Ferenc probably started his wife down the path of abusing young female servants. He'd supposedly order the girls to stand naked before him, going so far as to covering some of them in honey and forcing them to stand outside in the sun so that they would be attacked by insects. He reportedly did the fire between the toes trick to revive them if they passed out. The testimony that eventually brought this to light did suggest there was a limit to pharynx inhumanity, however. He supposedly stopped short of killing the servant girls and got a little peeved when his wife did. One man testified that when Lord Nadesty learned that a girl died in Elizabeth's care, he disapproved and actually forbade it. You might think that's because he was a stand-up guy, but apparently his big concern wasn't the mistreatment of girls, but rather the tarnishing of his image. You know, it just wasn't cool to go around killing people off the battlefield, and this was something Ferenc understood. That said, Ferenc wasn't around all the time, nor was he the only influence in Elizabeth's life. Her staff included several sadistic accomplices that strangely included a woman named Iona Joe, who'd been hired as a wet nurse for Elizabeth's children. Iona eventually helped Elizabeth torture and maim countless servant girls. There was another evil influence. In 1601, the household was joined by a strange woman by the name of Anna Darvoglia. It was rumored that she was a witch. What is undeniable, though, is that Elizabeth's personality underwent a dramatic change from the time that Darvoglia entered the household. She became much more sadistic. Whereas her husband taught her to torture, Anna taught her to kill. Under the sinister tutelage of Anna, Elizabeth was responsible for the deaths of several of her servants around this time. The methods of torture are so disturbing that I'm going to run through them quickly because even though these people died 400 years ago, it still makes my skin crawl. So here it goes. It was common, apparently, for Elizabeth and or her assistants to strip the girls naked, as Ferenc did, and then jab needles in their arms, in their legs, and under their nails. They would use plier-like tools to not just twist chunks of skin on the girls' backs, but to actually rip those chunks from their bodies. They lit candles and heated pokers and used those to burn the girls' genitals. Simple history again. The accounts of the atrocities often mention girls being severely beaten, burnt, the mutilation of their hands, the biting of flesh off their faces, arms, and other body parts, and freezing or starving to death. There were even allegations of hot needles being used as well as girls being burned with hot tongs and then being plunged into cold water. There were also claims that some girls were regularly whipped with nettles. For a very long time, Elizabeth got away with most of this. 
That was largely because the mistreatment of servant girls was common and even expected back in the day, even if common decency generally dictated that noble men and women didn't straight up kill people without cause. But the rumors started, and Elizabeth got some pushback from clergy. Local pastors became increasingly suspicious as Elizabeth more frequently asked them to come to the castle to perform funeral rites for serving girls who had apparently died of cholera. It is recorded that one priest, after having attended too many funerals, pulled her aside and said to her, Your grace should not have acted so because it offends the Lord and we will be punished if we do not complain to you and criticize your grace. And in order to find my words are true, we need only exhume the body and you will find that the marks identify the way in which death occurred. This accusation did not sit well with Elizabeth, who wrote to her husband to complain. Ferenc returned to his wife and somehow smoothed things over with local clergy, probably via bribes, Kraft wrote, and the rumors quieted back down. But then Ferenc died, and it seemed like whatever restraint Elizabeth had suddenly disappeared. Ferenc Nadesti died in 1604. Given that average life expectancy during the era was about 54 years old, his death at 49 wasn't terribly premature. It couldn't have been pleasant, though, considering he apparently first fell ill three years before he died. Around 1601, Elizabeth's husband, Ferenc, became unwell. We don't know the specific nature of his condition, but it led to paralysis of the legs. When he died, Elizabeth was 44. She became even closer with Yona Joe and Anna Dervolia, as well as two other women, Doratya and Caitlin, plus a young boy called Yenos. We're not sure just how young Yenos was, but Kimberly L. Kraft in her book makes a solid argument for thinking he was maybe a teenager. Setting aside the torture he partook in, Yenos in general sounds like a grade-A jerk. Kraft wrote, quote, Witnesses said that he ran around the estates as he pleased, getting into fights and running off his mouth regarding the people he had killed and where their bodies were hidden. At least one witness, a judge, confronted the countess about him, but she apparently did nothing to discipline him." End quote. After Ferenc's death, Elizabeth and her allies set up camp at Chesti, where they had access to hundreds of girl servants. The girls would come from the nearby village outside of the castle walls. Each of the posse, with the exception of Caitlin, apparently, would go around offering young girls jobs in the castle. They'd usually make those offers to the girls' parents, and the parents likely thought it was a stroke of wonderful luck, because Elizabeth tended to pay well to take on the girls and also promised the parents that the child wouldn't just be well cared for, but she'd likely end up married to boot. Now, as mentioned, a handful of girls had died prior to Ferenc's death, but it had been rare enough that even with the clergy getting suspicious about things, no one seemed overly alarmed. Elizabeth, after all, was kind to the neediest of her subjects. She was known to foot medical bills and provide food and clothing to the less fortunate. When she explained that she had sadly lost a few servants to cholera, plenty of people believed her. But after Ferenc's death, the body count grew so swiftly that no one bought the cholera lie anymore. People who actually saw the bodies knew for sure these girls didn't die of disease. They clearly had been tortured. Their bodies were missing chunks of flesh. They were emaciated from starvation. 
a compilation of experts via real crime again. Elizabeth Bathory had a terrible temper, and she enjoyed torturing people. She enjoyed humiliating them. If you didn't iron her things properly, she would put an iron onto your face and leave you marked for life. A servant girl who had displeased her had her jaw physically ripped open. Bathory leapt forward and she took the jaw of the girl and she just ripped it open with, with, with her hands. I mean, that's a true sadistic rage. People were catching on and refusing to let their daughters work at the castle. For a while, Elizabeth's hench people changed tacks and recruited from outside the nearest village. But parents wanting word about their daughters were turned away, told they couldn't check on their loved ones, told they'd died suddenly under unfortunate circumstances. And soon, the servant girl pool dried up. Word had spread to everyone except the nobility. See, even with Elizabeth, within a few years killing dozens of servant girls, that only drew so much attention because they were servant girls. They were on society's fringes. Other noble folk didn't care about missing or murdered poor people. The rumors never reached them. So when Elizabeth decided to opening a finishing school for young girls, families of noble birth thought nothing of sending their girls there. It would be the perfect cover for her to continue her torturous ways with a higher class of victim. At the same time, the attendance fees that the parents of the girls paid would infuse some much-needed funds into the Bathory coffers. So these rich families were paying to send their daughters to a finishing school run by Elizabeth Bathory. And guess what? They weren't going to look the other way when the girls started to disappear. You might be wondering why Elizabeth would start targeting nobility. And that's where one of the modern day legends comes into play. Some people believe that Elizabeth would bathe in the blood of her young victims in an attempt to keep herself youthful and folks who believe that tale reason that she must have along the way decided that blood from the noble-born would achieve her goal more efficiently. There's no contemporary documentation suggesting that Elizabeth did the whole bathing in blood nonsense, though. Trial testimony from her lifetime suggests she had no special interest in blood per se. She was sadistic, deranged, and cruel, and she tortured her victims until they bled copious amounts. But there's no record of her seeking to sop up or save any of that blood. In fact, there are references to her changing her clothing if it got too blood-soaked. Anyway, it doesn't seem she was driven by some bizarre fascination with blood. Rather, as Biographics posits, it seems more likely that Elizabeth was driven specifically by an insatiable need to kill young girls. So much that... It certainly clouded her reasoning. I mean, she was making dumb choices at this point. It was obvious that the aristocratic parents of teenage girls who suddenly disappeared would move heaven and earth to get to the bottom of what had happened to their pride and joy. But none of that mattered to Elizabeth. All she saw was a ready supply of nubile young bodies. Inevitably, the body count began adding up and the parents came calling. Elizabeth made up the bizarrest of excuses. One of the girls had gone crazy and killed the other girls before committing suicide, but no one was convinced. Some parents appealed to the king, Matthias II, and he decided to undertake an investigation. This is what proved to be Elizabeth's undoing. The king sent Georgie Thurzo, who was essentially the prime minister and another member of the nobility, who happened to have been a close associate of Elizabeth's late husband. He was so close, in fact, 
On his deathbed, Ferenc had even asked Thurzo to look out for his wife. It seems he was skeptical early in his investigation. He'd heard rumors about missing girls, of course, but it seemed beyond the pale that Elizabeth was murdering girls, especially daughters of nobility. That seemed crazy. He treated her with far more respect and decency than he would have had she been a member of the lower class. He even believed the story she wove for him the first time he interviewed her. But there was a pattern to Elizabeth's cruelty. She was known to become the most violent with her staff after making public appearances or hosting events at her castle. It seemed the stress of running her estates and playing the part of Countess caused her to explode in fits of deadly rage. This happened soon after Thurzo interviewed her. Villagers reported that four girls were tossed over the castle walls. Whoever did the tossing apparently had hoped that coyotes or wolves would quickly devour the corpses, but that didn't happen. Thurzo came back, found a dead girl inside the castle and another girl near death, and arrested Elizabeth, Doratya, Catalin, Iona, and Yanis. He would have arrested Anna Darvolia, too, but it so happened that she'd suffered a blinding stroke that had recently killed her. Thurzo was still reluctant to put a countess on trial, so he started with her four alleged accomplices. As part of that investigation, he led interviews with some 300 people, workers, villagers, associates, etc. Not many testified that they'd witnessed any abuse firsthand, but a few did, and those people were actually pretty high-ranking ones. Their testimony carried weight that, say, a bereaved peasant fathers might not have at the time. The most damning information, however, came from the accomplices. In fairness, it should be noted that the information came after a period of torture, which was part of the interrogation process at the time. It's kind of wild to think about, since nowadays we know that torture can elicit false confessions. But back in this era, the accused were automatically tortured before they were asked to give statements. The thing is, though, that historians largely accept these statements as true because they were consistent with each other. According to the four, Elizabeth regularly instructed them to punish young servants, almost always girls between the ages of 10 and 14, who Elizabeth felt had flubbed in their work or had otherwise displeased her. The punishments were often related to the perceived crime or slight. A girl who sewed poorly might have needles shoved into her fingertips under the guise of helping her focus. A girl who stole a gold coin was punished by having said coin heated until it glowed and then pressed into the flesh of her hand. The accomplices agreed that Anna Darvolia, the woman who had died of a stroke, was the most brutal of the bunch, which might sound convenient, blame the dead woman for the worst of things, but this was backed up by some non-accomplice witnesses too. Anna apparently would concoct some of the most brutal bouts of torture, hitting girls on the soles of their feet and palms of their hands up to 500 times in a row. She would beat and beat and beat, then revive the girls when they passed out, and then she'd keep it up until the girl finally died. The accomplices also agreed that the least cruel of the group was Caitlin, who would actually refuse to torture the girls. She was still useful to Elizabeth because she helped bury the corpses, but Caitlin was apparently defiant enough that at one point, she herself was beaten so badly for refusing to beat a girl that she ended up in bed for a month recovering from her own injuries. 
The estimates of Elizabeth's true body count are between several dozen and 650 victims, though that latter number came from one source during the trial and is undoubtedly false. That witness was a young servant girl named Susanna who was illiterate but testified that someone told her he'd seen a comprehensive list of victims written in Elizabeth's handwriting and that the tally reached 650. The truth, while likely a fraction of that, is still appalling. Most historians agree that 100-plus victims seems a reasonable estimate. Of the accomplices, Caitlin was the only to escape the death penalty. Iona, Doratya, and Yanis were all sentenced to die. Yanis was spared torture before his death, apparently on account of his young age. The other two women, however, weren't so lucky. Their fingers were torn out by iron tongs before they were put to death and then tossed on a bonfire. Yanis got the better deal by being swiftly beheaded, and then his body was tossed in the same heap to burn alongside Doratya and Iona. Caitlin was sentenced to life in prison. Whether she ever got out is lost to history. Now, Elizabeth was adamant that the accomplices had worked entirely on their own, and she was determined to prove it. She wrote Thurzo time and again demanding, then begging, that she be allowed to give testimony to clear her name. Thurzo was adamantly opposed to this. He saw no good coming from drawing further attention to the atrocities committed and instead convicted Elizabeth without a trial and sentenced her to life imprisonment in her own castle. The king, at first, wasn't keen on this arrangement, but he eventually relented because further interviews actually made Ferenc the war hero look bad too. Like, the more they dug into this case, the worse everything appeared. Ferenc had taught his wife torture techniques, had known that she was killing girls on occasion, and had apparently bribed clergy to look the other way. Instead of moving forward with a trial, the king eventually conceded that castle imprisonment was a fitting end, that and wiping her very existence from as much public record as possible. Much of the documentation that exists for other nobility in this era is missing when it comes to the Bathory clan, apparently because a good bit of it was intentionally destroyed. The king and Thurzo wanted to spare the couple's children and grandchildren from permanent infamy. Obviously, that didn't quite work. After Elizabeth died inside of her castle in 1610, her estate was spread among her three surviving children. 200 years later, in the early 1800s, documents and transcripts from the trial that convicted her accomplices were discovered in an attic, leading to the first book written about her life. That resurrection of her story also led to the vampiric embellishments that surround her still. Take this piece in the Bath Weekly Chronicle and Herald, published on October 5, 1826, which had started out with an accurate depiction of how Elizabeth punished young women for the most trifling faults. Quote, One day, she struck one of them in a brutal manner, and the blood of the victim having flown into her face, she ran to a mirror to wipe it off. She fancied that her skin was become whiter, more beautiful, and more brilliant, and the idea immediately occurred to her of renewing her youth by bathing herself in the blood of these unfortunate girls." End quote. And this was printed in a newspaper. People had no way to fact-check it at the time, and so the seeds of a Dracula-esque legend were sown. 
As such, she has become just as embellished as Vlad the Impaler, upon whom Bram Stoker's 1897 book Dracula was mostly based. Some tales have Elizabeth murdering lovers and keeping their hearts in boxes strewn about her bedroom. Some have her filling literal bathtubs with blood, which is a practical impossibility, given the number of bodies that would be required to fill a single tub. These tales appear to be hogwash, but the truth? Well, that's horrific enough. To research this case, I read the second edition of Kimberly L. Craft's infamous lady, the true story of Countess Erzabet Bathory, and watched several documentaries. It was all creepy, but interesting. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 